Previously on Serial Dater. I had one foot out of the city when I matched with a young man named Calvin. Where are you? I'm in Glasgow. Is that okay? I'm in Edinburgh now. And even worse, I live in the south. Like England. Why would you do this to me? Really regretting not asking you to come to Edinburgh. Of course I'd come to Edinburgh. Calvin pulled me into a doorway and kissed me on the mouth. Fuck, was he good at kissing. It's one of the finest memories I have. I sort of melodramatically acknowledged that my life would now be separated into the time leading up to meeting Calvin and the time after it. I was anxious to see him again. I'm busy the next couple of weeks, but what about February? The second weekend in February was Valentine's Day. On February 3rd, I started to feel despair again. It had been five days since I had heard from him. The despair had a scary quality to it, and this is how I found Tara Brock. We don't have to let go as in, like, it's not like that. In the video of this talk, she makes a pushing away motion. It's more like just opening in an honest way to the reality that things come and go. I now have to work this upcoming weekend, so there's no way I can see you. Tragic. So I'm getting the feeling that you are continuing avoiding talking to me. He never replied. In mid-March, a reminder popped up on my calendar that it was time to get my regular STD test. I did not pass the test with flying colors. There was one message that I was dreading sending. Remember that, ahem, brief street fellatio? Hey there, I started, nearly two months after we'd last spoken. So I have some unfun news to share. Bit mad. Calvin replied, as if our ceasing communication previously had been an unfortunate mutual occurrence. I was just thinking about you, in all seriousness. Looks like I wasn't done with him after all. I stared at my phone. What the fuck was going on? Here he was, chatting at me like nothing had happened. A minute or two later, a second message popped up. Thanks for letting me know, he said, as if I had told him he'd left his headlights on. I've been tested since, and I'm A-OK. I sat there in my living room, not sure what to do, for a solid ten minutes. A part of me was excited to hear from him, sure, but another part was mad. Not like, well, this is a bit much mad, but like Aiden at the end of season four of Sex and the City when Carrie shows up at his doorstep in the middle of the night and professes her love for him, mad. because you look so good, and you do, and you should know that. But I lie in bed at night, and I think about us, and I think about... You holding me and... You broke my heart! In retrospect, maybe that was the right answer for that moment, but not trusting myself to act impulsively, well, not too impulsively, I tried to restrain myself. That being said, it's possible a little snark snuck its way in. Glad to hear it, I said, and then a minute later. All right, I'll take the bait. What exactly were you thinking about me? The bait? He replied, ready to go sass for sass. That's rich considering your excuse to message me. This is the problem with text messaging. There was no time, or maybe it was an issue of space, for me to explain that I had no plans to ever message him again. That I had not expected him to reply, and that having laid my feelings on the table in my final text message to him before, a statement from him that he'd been thinking about me was way more baity than my being get yourself tested. But whatever, he kept going. I was thinking about how I should have explained why I abruptly stopped messaging you, he wrote. I stared at the screen thinking, uh, yeah, that'd be nice. The truth is. Okay, well, this part I'm not going to share here because A, as you'll soon see, it was, probably still is, a kind of sensitive topic, B, 
I still care about the guy. And see, even if I didn't, I'm not that big of an asshole. But essentially, Calvin had a minor medical condition which he was self-conscious about. As he mentioned it, the dimmest of memories of it being discussed during our date in Edinburgh emerged out of the recollective haze, but until that very moment, I'd forgotten about it completely. And you made a small, most probably innocent comment about it, and I backed away. He continued. So that's that. Cards on the table and all that. I was speechless. Textless, I guess. Shocking, I know. It was sort of a perfect nightmarish mixture of my pre-existing foot-and-mouth paranoia combined with Calvin being insecure, and, it seemed, being unable to hear what I'd been saying about being really into him. Finally, I wrote back, I don't know what to say exactly. I guess I still don't understand. I'm not sure when I said the thing or what I said or whether you backed off because you thought I was turned off by it or because what I said hurt you. I really hope I didn't. I just liked you so damn much. 21 minutes passed. My phone dinged. What you said was stupid, he replied. Oh my god, what was it I said? By the way, I still don't know. And I took it to heart, too much. And clearly I thought it was just easier to patch it. God damn it, even when he's telling me how he discarded me, he uses an adorable British term like patch. What a fucker. Sorry, he added. I did like you. I don't know that a verb tense has ever been more closely analyzed than it was in that moment. I took a while to collect my thoughts. Well, I can't begin to tell you how sorry I am that I hurt you with what I said, I began. If there's some kind of irony somewhere in here, it's that I was trying really hard to say everything right to get you to like me. For what it's worth, I was basically a wreck for a few weeks after you disappeared. Even right now, I'm still really scared that you're going to vanish again. And I guess to be completely above board, I still feel some kind of way about you. That thing I said, I asked, was it on the phone? It wasn't something I said in Edinburgh, right? It was on the phone, he wrote back. This fine man. I'm just a bit self-conscious about it and behaved like a fuck twat. Should have just said to you or something. I mean, I wish you had, if only so I could have said that until you mentioned it today, I had 100% forgotten about it. I'm still so insanely sorry I made you feel badly about it, but like, not to get hyperbolic, but if you had had open bubonic plague sores, I probably would have still been down to hang. I added parenthetically, okay, that was gross. I kind of wish I could have phrased that better. That is pretty gross, he said. Don't worry, I've read worse by you. Google finds, of course. Heh, <laughs> is all I could muster in return. He was trying to be funny, but maybe he didn't quite realize how weird it felt to think about him reading something I'd written while he wasn't talking to me. Maybe we weren't quite as ready to transition back into witty banter as I'd thought. Also, don't feel bad. I know you didn't mean anything by it. Oh, the ship has already sailed on that one, I said. I guess I should point out here, if it's not already totally obvious, that I'm the kind of guy who will never use five words when fifty will do. The more pressing question for me is, I went on, did this foot-mouth moment put you off me forever? I mean, I guess it did, but then you're talking to me and I didn't expect that to ever happen again. The thing is, you're one of those only-comes-along-once-in-a-blue-moon kind of guys, and if there's any chance that I could get to see you again, I'm gonna take it. I would very much like to go to Brighton, he said. Which I suppose is my stupidly roundabout way of saying, I would very much like to still see you again. I almost couldn't believe what I was reading, but, as is my want, when things get a bit too serious, I pivot to comedy. 
Okay, I said, but don't come for a few weeks. I've got to get some, er, cough things, cough, sorted. Ugh, I'm trying to be funny and it's going terribly. In fact, I'm really stupidly happy. Well, aren't we optimistic slash presumptuous? He wrote back, making me nervous for a second. Jokes. Let's bang. In all seriousness, I'd like to spend some time with you. And I with you. I'm a very confused but delighted Charlie Beckerman, and this is Serial Dater, UK edition. It's just Episode 5, The Return. So, I was elated, but not in the way I had been after our first date. Maybe that's obvious. I felt like I was holding something fragile, a precious object in my Butterfinger hands, and that any wrong move would cause me to drop it, shattering the pieces everywhere. I was happy, but I was also being extra cautious. I left our initial conversation without any sort of plan as to when we'd rendezvous again, What my anxiety craved was a firm date of reconciliation, something I could count down to. But asking for that on our first reconnection seemed indecorous, and, more terrifyingly, a good way to scare him off. Moreover, if we were resetting things, it was left wildly unclear where they were getting reset to. If I'd been picking, I would have turned the volume up all the way on our communication, but things did not return to our post-first date haze of texts and phone calls. That night, I sent him a good night text, and when he didn't respond either that night or the next day, I wrote, not intending any passive aggression, so clearly too soon for the mushy stuff, I'll dial it back. If you feel like giving me a sign that you're still here, I'd appreciate it. He replied quickly, I've already told you that I'm up for seeing you again, you madman. I've been working all day. I am absolutely 100% a madman, but thanks for the message. Sorry about work and my crazy but there was no further reply. At the time, I wasn't able to quite sense the bark in his response, a result of the thrill of him being willing to talk to me, the fact that the thing he was barking at me was his interest in seeing me, and an underlying guilt at my having the time and space to pine, brood, and sulk, like a member of the landed gentry, while he'd been toiling away at work. Still, rereading it now, I can't say I love how quickly I quailed in the face of his snipe, In many ways, during this time, I felt the most trapped between the intensity of my feelings and the still meager history of our lowercase r relationship. I forced myself to wait as long as I could before reaching out again. I lasted about two days. I was still trying to be aloof and carefree about the whole thing, but extruding this aw shucks attitude through the tiny, tiny holes of my anxiety, I can't imagine I was fooling anybody. Okay, two big questions for you, I began. I can only assume hoping for a fake-out. One, what are your thoughts on when this Brighton trip is going to go down? And two, do you want me to grow my beard back? His reply, Well, when are you free? I've got work rotas for the next month, so it can't be April. Fatih had been coaching me throughout this process to try and always end on a question, giving him something specific to respond to. I almost nailed it. My schedule's pretty flexible, I began. Joys of being a student. Any time in May before the 17th is fine, though I'll need to get the dates pinned down soon so I can plan out my work. What days work for you? I should have left it there, but ever the overcloser, I added. Also, I can make a trip up to Glasgow work too, if that'd make things easier for you. But all I got back was crickets. At the time, I blamed myself for muffling my direct question with my overenthusiasm. 
Certainly one thing that plagued me throughout this process was my seeming inability to get any straight talk done vis-a-vis where we stood. I had gotten a generic intent for wanting to visit from him, but being unable to plan the visit for him, I had to release myself completely into his control for when I would next see him. I've heard that this is a characteristic of Virgos, to want to control of everything. I was so ready to take Calvin at his word that he was planning, that the trip was imminent, that when no plans were forthcoming, it felt extra slimy and unpleasant. I let five days go by, which I guess in normal human standards is not a lot, but at the time it felt like an age. One of my readers argued that, in fact, given the context, five days was a lot. If I took him at his word, he was A, interested in coming, B, figuring it out, but was C, busy. And there probably would have been some value to taking him at his word, but instead, I could feel myself sliding greasily back into the place I had found myself in the last time around. The one difference, I suppose, was that I was trying to put Tara Brock's ideas about mindfulness and thoughts into practice. One story she'd shared had stuck with me and was informing a lot of my sticking with itness. I often give the metaphor, um, and I can't do it too often because it, it helps me so much, of you know, seeing a dog under a tree, a person's walking, and the, they go to pet the dog, and the dog lurches at them with its fangs bared and you know, really aggressive, and the person gets you know, angry at the bad dog and then sees the dog has its leg in a trap, and it switches in an instant to, oh, you poor thing. The underlying idea here was that anyone who's causing you pain is themselves reflecting their own pain. In the moment, my rationale was that Calvin wasn't leaving me hanging out of malice, or even specifically because he wasn't that into me, but because there was something else going on, something that he himself was in pain over. Getting really into the rose-colored weeds, I told myself, and to be fair to my former self, I still sort of believe this, that giving up on him would be rewarding his bad behavior. Tara used the dog-tied-to-the-tree story to describe how she counseled a woman going through a divorce about how the woman could still have compassion for her husband while also deciding that they shouldn't stay together. You can have compassion for the dog, Tara said, but that doesn't mean you should try and pet the dog again. The difference, I guess, for me is that I really wanted to pet the dog, and I thought that if I was patient and clear and persistent, I might be able to. Certainly, I wasn't ready to give up on him. I decided at this juncture I just wanted to be very clear about where I was coming from. This is what I wrote after five days of silence. Hey man, I figure you're still probably figuring out your schedule, but I wanted to check in, mostly because, well, despite your assurances, I'm having some bad flashbacks to last time. I don't think we really got into this the other day, but guys going radio silent on me is a major source of anxiety. As much as I wish I could be super chill and aloof about all this, I think I just like you too much for that to be the case. I'm not trying to add extra pressure to the situation, but I want you to know where I'm coming from and to ask for a little kindness when it comes to communication. I'm not looking for constant contact, just an update on your plans, or if you haven't made your plans yet when you think you might. It'd go a long way towards keeping me out of my crazy brain. Hope your week is going okay. It would be another two days before I would hear back from him.
But other things were afoot. Among the many pieces of advice that we got from former Fulbright people, one of the most recurrent was, don't wait too long to visit other Fulbright people around the UK. I tried to take it to heart, visiting Bill in Oxford in the fall, but it was quickly becoming clear that time was already running out on our year. One thing that the UK was great for was affordable classical music performances. And using a database called BachTrack, get it? I found a performance of Schumann's Fourth Symphony in Liverpool in late April, a piece that had been on my bucket list. So, as was my want, I started scheming and looking up train prices. In my defense, when this plan was first hatched, it existed 100% independent of any sort of anything to do with Calvin. But when you live on the south coast of an island nation, there are a few places you can travel that don't lead you back north. The original plan for my trip involved taking the train from Brighton to London and hopping on a train to Birmingham, where I would have lunch with Sarah, an organist studying choral directing. And then I would continue on to Liverpool to listen to Schumann and to meet up with Garrett, a historian studying the slave trade, which Liverpool played an important role in. From there, the other Fulbright friend I'd been intending to visit but hadn't made my way to yet was Eli, a trombonist studying experimental music in Leeds. From Leeds, I would roll back down to London and then to Brighton, the whole itinerary costing something roughly in the realm of 40 pounds. But hopeful, possibly delusionally so, that I'd hear something from Calvin that would give me some indication of where we stood, I only booked the northbound portion of my trip. By April 14th, not having heard from Calvin for a full week, I decided that I might have to make my own closure. As I said to Fatih, I can't just keep crying. So I added on an extra day to my trip. From Leeds, I would head up to Glasgow, and then, to make it work cost-wise, the day after that, I would take a nine-hour megabus from Glasgow back down to London. A continuing struggle for me, and one which I'm still not even sure whether I was being unreasonable about, was whether Calvin's non-communication was in fact a clear, definitive no. We can all agree that at any point I would have been well within reason to be like, bye Felicia, but maybe this is another element of my Virgo-ness, the fear that if I did that, he'd just pop up again a few weeks later. If I was going to be in the thrall of the emotional washing machine, at the very least I wanted to have some idea of where in the cycle I was. Not sure exactly what's going on, and a sane man would just give up, but well, there we are, I texted to Calvin. I'm coming to Glasgow on Sunday, April 24th. Just for a night, and I have a place to stay, but I'd really, really like to see you, even if it's just for coffee. I get in at 1 p.m. on Sunday and leave the next day at 11 a.m. Fingers crossed. He responded later that day and sounded kind of pissed off. Nothing's going on. I've just been working non-stop, you maddie. Was I being crazy? On the one hand, I had oodles of time with which to think and overthink and over-overthink the entire situation. This was all mental energy that could have been much better used on writing or research or, Christ, anything else. Though we all know that that's not how it works. On the other hand, it had been a week since he'd written to me. And the last time he'd gone a week without talking to me, it was during the great patching. So how else was I supposed to interpret it? I guess the thing that needs to be said here is that one odd and unsettling side effect of this project 
is that I've had to revisit with equal scrutiny the whole of my experience with Calvin. Since it happened, I've thumbed through the highs plenty, and the lowest of the lows a few times. But these middling parts have gone largely unexamined, and there's something that I can't really get away with not addressing in the present. I was getting gaslit. Not quite a Don and Betty Draper level inferno, but the hob was definitely on. For those listeners unfamiliar with the term, gaslighting is the practice of person A acting badly towards person B, and then person A trying to convince person B that not only is person A not acting badly, but person B is crazy. It's actually a pretty insidious little psychological number. All I can really say to mitigate how it looks now is that even trying to stare at it coldly and objectively, I doubt he knew he was doing it. Leaning into the narrative that I was being enthusiastic and overexcited and overthinking things, let's call it a soft crazy, was probably easier than any of the alternatives. A frank discussion? Breaking things off with me? An honest self-reckoning? It probably didn't help that I was eager to take up the mantle of the crazy in love person. I wonder where I might have gotten that idea from. In the moment, though, all I could see was that he was talking to me. And to make things extra confusing, he kept talking to me. Currently in bed, unwell, possibly due to being overworked and undersleeped. Sleeped isn't a word, but I use it when I'm speaking out loud, so I'll use it here also. I am working on the 24th, but I'll be free after 7. Of course I want to see you if you're going to be in the city. For the record, I certainly felt crazy. But the clarifying questions I could come up with felt like they had the possibility of bringing the whole thing down. He had said he'd see me in Glasgow, and that was going to have to be enough for now. Fati's advice was to cue it up so that there was no more communication that had to happen until the trip was already underway. Okay, I said the next day, responding to his, of course I want to see you. That's exciting. I'm sorry you're sick, and I hope you're able to kick it quickly. I'll shoot you a text next week and we can figure out plans. Hope you feel better. But he wasn't done. I'm actually feeling much better. Phone didn't sick to work yesterday, which was a great idea. Although my flatmate and his friends have a radio show, and the tunes were blasting and it was hellish. He went on to tell me all about plans he had with his friends to go to the movies. The cinema on Friday night, he said. I'm getting old. I sent him a grandma emoji in return. What are you going to see? The Jungle Book. Who's dragging you to that? My friends Stuart and Sarah. Former friends? Former friends who can pay for my large popcorn smothered in butter. Herein passed a conversation detailing the benefits and drawbacks of different movie theater snacks, including the definition of a pick-and-mix, which is essentially bulk candy at a movie theater, in which Calvin was mortified I'd never heard of. He sent a photo to clarify. Only this cavity star, he said by way of explanation. Hashtag Y-O-H-T-T-T, I wrote. You only have 32 teeth. You should be obese, he replied. I'd be obese. How do you know I'm not right now? We're both imagining each other as we remember each other. Except I know you have less beard. Eyeballs emoji. What's your beard status? I asked. Possibly the same. I don't think I have anything to compare it with. I said, okay, fair, semi-saucily. I have one photo when my beard was longish, but I'm topless. So let's all take a breath. 
That was probably the right advice, frankly. Though there was something else in that moment, too. A perhaps unforced admission on his part that he knew that I was in it enough to need that deep breath. We were chatty Cathy's for the rest of the day and into the next, ending with a discussion of how he'd ended up with so many cousins. Nothing else to do but fuck during a famine. Sure, I replied. Plus, nary a contraceptive in sight. It was borderline creepy how easy it was for me to relapse back into the carefree pseudo-dating chat with Calvin, and it's something that all of my friends warned me against. You have to have a real talk with him, Fati told me. You cannot just go there and have a good time and come back. If you do that, I will slap you. There was an extent to which, within my own circle of friends, I had become the only advocate for Calvin. All my friends, both in the U.S. and in Brighton, seemed to have had enough of his shenanigans. I had more than a few moments throughout this entire experience where I sort of felt bad for Calvin. He was operating under some understanding that aloofness would not be tolerated by any rational actor. All he had to do to get rid of someone was just be a shitty communicator. But what he hadn't counted on was, one, someone falling pretty hard for him, and two, that person finding a weird thread into Buddhism. Because if I had gleaned one thing from Tara's podcasts, and I am certainly willing to concede that I had selectively drawn lessons that fit my own desires, thinking that someone is just a bad person is almost always misguided. And moreover, it's a reflection of pain that we feel about ourselves. I was equal parts excited and nervous as I began my trip, and made my best effort to keep the excitement mask in place over the anxiety. I slapped a hashtag on it, hashtag only a northern weekend in case you want to check out the photos on Instagram, and headed north. Birmingham was a fun blur of museums and Indian buffets with Sarah. Liverpool was the perfect balance of classical music, Beatles nostalgia, and catching up with Garrett. Leeds involved checking out the Royal Armory, which included an armored elephant, before heading to an experimental music performance that Eli was organizing and performing in. In the back of my mind, though, I was keyed up with uncertainty about what, if anything, awaited me in Scotland. A text on the Tuesday before the trip about where and when we might meet up went unanswered for three days, though eventually I got a message from Calvin asking me if I'd booked somewhere to stay. Of course, I'd already told him I had a friend I could stay with, but he seemed to have forgotten. I clarified the situation for him and didn't hear from him for the rest of the day. I finally broke down and texted him the next day, asking him again where we might meet, still preparing myself at any juncture for him to vanish. I was at Eli's experimental music performance when my phone lit up. Central Station or George Square are pretty good slash standard places to meet. Don't want you getting lost now, do we? Also, you're more than welcome to stay with me, OBS, if you want to or need to, that is. I didn't respond right away, I was at a music performance after all, and so he added 15 minutes later, Just to let you know, I'm excited to see you tomorrow. I can't precisely remember how much I'd had to drink at this point, but I managed a restrained response right around midnight. You're cute. We didn't get back to Eli's until around 2. I scrabbled together 4 or 5 hours of sleep before my alarm woke me for my early train. I slipped out of Eli's flat and strolled through early morning leads, which was peaceful and sweet. I was both excited and scared heading to the station, that feeling when you know you've overinvested yourself in several formats, financially, logistically, not to mention emotionally. But Calvin's text from the night before had also been reinvigorating. 
I grabbed the 8.30 train from Leeds to Edinburgh and managed to snap a picture of the sign that demarcates the border between England and Scotland. I'd bought the early ticket to save money, but arriving in Glasgow at 1, it meant I had a full six hours to kill before Calvin got off of work. I walked around the Glasgow Museum of Art, which was pretty cool, spent a little bit of time in the library in the museum's basement, bought a book and hunkered down at a Starbucks to read, but really, I couldn't concentrate on anything. Instead, all I could think about was how strange it would be to see Calvin again. Finally, at the appointed hour, I made my way down Sucky Hall Street to the address he'd given me. He'd apparently been watching my approach. I see you looking all lost, he texted. Buzzer too. I have a very vivid memory of making my way up the stairs, not knowing what to expect when the door opened. I can't believe you're here, he said. I smiled. I couldn't help myself. I sort of can't either. We hugged. In my memory of the moment, we didn't start kissing right away. Once again, I was taken off guard by the inch or two of height he had on me. I forgot that you're taller, I said. I'm also wearing boots, he said, showing me the thick soles of his shoes. Ah, I said, so you're cheating. I have to do something to level the playing field. Then we started kissing. It was amazing how quickly all the bad feeling melted out of me. I'm sure there's a neurological explanation for this, something that's a combination of sex drive, attachment theory, and general wanting to forgive those people we care about, their trespasses against us. We were just standing in the middle of the front hall of his apartment, which was actually pretty large and grand to be honest. We stopped kissing long enough for him to give me the nickel tour. Every room was large, the ceilings were 14 feet high. The living room was large enough for three sofas, a fish tank, and a jukebox. The kitchen could have accommodated a dining room table, and his bedroom was big enough that one could have done yoga without hitting any of the furniture. I eyed his bed with curiosity as we dropped my bag in his room, but turned to him and said, We should either go to dinner, or I'm going to rip all your clothes off. Well, I see the appeal of the latter. I haven't eaten anything in a while, so... There are several problems you encounter when your second date is three months after your first date, and even though you feel much closer than you did on the first date, you still haven't actually done a whole lot of things together. For instance, we'd never had a meal together, and though I'm fairly certain my vegetarianism had come up in conversation, we never actually had to put it into practice. Also, side note on vegetarianism. Most of the time, if you're in a major metropolitan area, finding things to eat as a vegetarian is not that difficult. I can't speak for vegans, people who are gluten-free, or the lactose intolerant, but if the only thing you're trying to avoid is meat, ugh, and fish, would pescatarians please stop calling themselves vegetarians? You're harshing our mellow. There are few restaurants where there will literally be zero options for us on the menu. That being said, the carnivores among us, especially when they're new to dining with us, will sometimes overcompensate by trying to find a specifically vegetarian restaurant, which is sweet, but sometimes overkill. All by way of saying, Calvin had somewhat adorably picked out an all-vegetarian cafe at the Glasgow School of Art, where apparently they had curry chips, 
aka french fries, that were supposed to be pretty incredible. We walked through the streets of Glasgow, still, I think, a little unsure of how to be together. When we got to where the cafe was supposed to be, it was closed. Calvin assumed that sort of tight frustration familiar to me from when I'd made plans for an out-of-town visitor, only to have them foiled by strange business hours. We can literally go anywhere else, I said, realizing that we were both suddenly anxious. Him to find me a place to eat, me for him to not be anxious. What about this place, I said, pointing to a sign on Scott Street as we walked back towards the main drag of Sucky Hall that said Saramago Cafe. We went in to find a restaurant in an enclosed atrium strung with Christmas lights. In the UK, they call these fairy lights, which normally I'd take issue with slash get into a fight about, but you know what? They are pretty gay, so go for it, Britain. The restaurant happened to have an all-vegetarian menu, too, so oops, everyone did a great job, especially the city of Glasgow. For the first time, I noticed that Calvin did not like sitting across tables from me. Maybe this is how he was with everyone, but I hadn't actually seen him interact with anyone else, so I'm just going off the evidence that I have. He sat around the corner from me, and after we ordered, he took hold of my hand under the table. It was the same warm, dry, perfect fit grip that I had remembered from months earlier. Our food came, and it was with no small amount of disappointment that I had to let go to eat dinner. While obviously I would never have done this, and for any future dates I may or may not go on, I will never do this, there's a part of me that wishes I'd recorded whatever it was we talked about. I assume there was discussion of my school, of his job. I'm sure we talked about Donald Trump, and I doubt we discussed Brexit. Both were at this point ludicrous impossibilities. He talked about working at a sexual health clinic where he taught college students how to give consent and say condom in several different European languages. One thing I know I mentioned was that I'd recently learned that the Fulbright program had decided to hold its year-end meeting in Glasgow, which meant whatever else happened, I'd be back. Calvin seemed to greet this news enthusiastically, well, as enthusiastic as he ever got. Whatever else we talked about, it was effortless and delightful, and made me redouble my belief that there was something between the two of us that just worked in the moment. Still, I knew that something was coming. After dinner, we transitioned fairly neatly into drinking, hitting up Nice and Sleazy, a bar that I had seen on my previous visit to Glasgow, back when I had no idea that Calvin existed. Sleazy's, as Calvin let me know it was affectionately called, is everything 19-year-old me would have wanted in a bar, and was many of the things that 32-year-old me wanted as well. It was cheap, comfortable, and they sold white Russians for three pounds a pop. This, it turned out, was both a blessing and a curse. I had two white Russians before I remembered that imbibing milk right before I had ambitions to be sexy might not be the best plan of action. I made a first well-meaning but not enough of an intervention move of switching to soy milk white Russians, because let's be real you guys, white Russians are really good, before making the slightly more sensible plan of switching to gin and tonics. It was sneaking its way towards midnight at this point, And whether we'd exhausted all our easy breezy topics already, or whether Calvin just had a mind to get to the bottom of what was going on, I didn't know. Why did it get so intense? He asked me, staring at me from his seat next to me in the booth. Behind his head, the wall was decorated with people who had scribbled their names and their loves' names on the wall. It would probably be too much to want to write our names on the wall too, right? Right? I don't, I started. I'm not sure I want to say it in here. Because here's the thing. 
I had more or less decided what the answer to this question was a day or two earlier. I didn't know that it was going to be the answer to this specific question, but I did know it was something I wanted to say to him before I left. I hadn't particularly planned on saying it late at night after several rounds of drinks, but also I couldn't imagine a better setup for it. I just didn't want to say it in the bar where I might not be heard or where, I don't know, he might not be able to candidly respond. We left, five drinks worse than when we'd entered. Adding in the two pints I'd had with dinner, it was turning into a seven-drink night, which for me is kind of a lot. I had the impression that this was not the case for Calvin. April in Glasgow is crisp, though not as bitterly cold as January in Edinburgh had been. We started walking down the street, passing the last of the busy bars and storefronts before Sucky Hall Street crossed over the motorway and turned into a quieter, more residential boulevard. The reason it got so... the reason I couldn't just let it go, I began, realizing I was stammering a bit, was that, on our first date, I started falling in love with you. I don't know exactly what the guy had been expecting me to say, but I got the distinct impression that it wasn't that. And because I was drunk, the second I'd said it, I did the best I could to escape the moment. And noticing that my shoe was untied, this literally happened, I continued speaking and said, And now I have to tie my shoe, so if you're looking for a chance to run away, now's the perfect time. I bent down to tie my shoe and heard his footsteps take off down the street. I tied my shoe, head swimming with instantaneous regret, but also a little exhilaration. It was the first time I'd used the L word, okay, with some qualifiers, with the guy. Ever. His footsteps only carried for ten seconds or so before they stopped, so even as I tried to prepare myself mentally for the idea that he might have actually fled, forget the practicalities of I knew where he lived and I had my stuff in his flat, I couldn't get myself to believe it. As I straightened up, I saw the sidewalk in front of me was empty. Ha ha, I said sarcastically, walking towards the corner. I found him hiding behind a city map sign that stuck straight out of the ground. You're hilarious, I said as he smiled at me and took my arm. I know, he replied. I'm a very funny person. We kept walking down the street, which was basically empty by this point on a Sunday night. It was then that I started feeling the anxious tendrils of fear about saying what I'd said. That by saying it, in the hopes of, what, strengthening our connection, I'd sour the immediate date that was right in front of me. Of course, I knew the reasons I'd wanted to say it, the reason I needed to say it. The want was selfish, a pure childish desire to just tick the box, see how it felt to let that kind of vulnerability happen. Guess what? It's actually kind of terrifying. The need was... I just couldn't keep going with the fading in and out of communication, with him not knowing what was on the line for me. I had zero expectation that he was going to use any L words back for me. I'm crazy, but not that crazy. But if somehow things went to shit and part of the problem was that he didn't know how seriously I felt about him, well, that was on me. The L word probably deserves a bit more rumination here. Several of my friends bristled at it when I used it to describe my feelings for Calvin. One person going so far as to tell me I was wrong. You don't actually love him, they'd said. There are some complicating factors, to be sure. One, I was knee-deep in my sort of fake Buddhism practice, which talks a lot about a love that is somewhat distinct from our Western rom-com notions of love. 
That kind of love, which they call metta, and which translates more to something like loving kindness, is something one is supposed to practice towards all people. I had definitely done some melding of the two, and this had made me ready to use the L word in regard to Calvin more quickly. Two, love has a weird currency in Western culture. We use the word extensively, probably too much to be honest, to describe how we feel about everything other than people. Food, movies, TV shows, books, places. And with the exception of family members, longtime partners, and certain friends, we're very reserved with its use. Telling someone you're dating that you love them is a milestone, sure, but somewhere in the process, we placed such a scarcity on love that we're suspect when it manifests itself. I'll be the first to admit that my declaration of love had not gone through any proofing. If somehow love is purely a function of time, then perhaps my feelings for Calvin would not have passed the test. Three, in the months and years since all of this went down, I've had several conversations with people about what love is, and here's the thing, nobody fucking knows. My intention using it with him that night was to let him know that for better or for worse, my feelings for him were intense and they weren't going anywhere. And any request for logic, i.e. if a guy doesn't text you back, it means he's not that into it, was more or less out the door. As Laura Marling says in her song by the same title, don't let me bring you down. Did you think I was fucking around? But I'll tell you what happened when I decided that what I was feeling for Calvin was love. Weird, unwieldy, illogical, impractical love. Everything got easier. I won't say it ever got easy, because having feelings is still having feelings, but when I decided that that's what it was, I stopped worrying about what the feelings were. Even better, I could stop worrying about Calvin the person. His actions, sure, they worried the crap out of me, but my gut instinct was that underneath whatever bullshit was going on, the insecurity, the shitty communication, even the gaslighting, he was a good person. I'm perhaps so at sea in my own memories and feelings that I'm not sure where you, the listener, comes down on this question. I guess all I can ask you to do is to trust me, and trust that whatever barometer I was using wasn't completely defective. Thinking back to the moment following my sidewalk confession, I cannot say for certain what conversation took place, if any. I think he did wrap his arms around me, I think he did kiss me, but he didn't say it back. And, like I said, I wasn't expecting him to. We got back to Calvin's flat and appeared to have the place to ourselves. I don't know about him, but the booze and the lactose were starting to take their toll on me. And even though we started making out, we somehow ended up on the couch, his head in my lap. In some ways, this maybe was the most intimate, subcategory, non-sexual moment we shared. It was peaceful and present. We did a lot of looking into each other's eyes, which, ugh, cheesy to document for other people, but... Wow, is it good. Eventually, we got up, went to his bedroom, undressed. I had sort of thought we were on our way towards sex, but once we got down to our drawers, Calvin pulled me into a cuddle, and it appeared we were going to sleep. I was the big spoon, and so found myself, my right arm being held hostage, staring at his broad back. Come near to me now Swallow my pride Come find what we lost. We and 
I should have been happy. I should have been ecstatic. I guess a part of me was, but a part of me was also confused. Weren't we supposed to have sex now? Wasn't this, us being in bed, a culmination of months of sexual frustration, varying levels of trying less satisfying hookups to get the emotional satisfaction I was really after? But we weren't having sex. We were going to bed like, fuck, well like an old married couple. Which, okay, sure, I did kind of want that, but still. And when I held up the expectation of sex against what we were doing, all I could think of as to why it was one way and not the other way was my sidewalk confession. I had ruined everything. The gears of my mind ground together like a bad clutch, and like a bad clutch, I was not keeping quiet. I'm worried I, I said to his back. What I mean is, he didn't move. Had he fallen asleep? Was he rolling his eyes? Or was he squeezing them shut, hoping I would just shut up? I rolled away from him for a moment and tried to suppress a sob. I expected at any moment for him to ask me to go out into the living room, or for him to go out himself. I was literally pressed up against him, and yet I was convinced he was already gone. I've got plenty of regrets about things that went down with Calvin, but this is one that hits me the hardest. After months of listening to Tara Brock talk about taking in the moment, the fact that I had my moment and couldn't be present for it, that I could only think about some future when he wouldn't be there, that gets me the most upset. I'm sorry I ruined everything, I said at one point into the dark. You didn't ruin anything. Just go to sleep. In the moment, I read his tone as, not angry, but frustrated. Like, who was this hot dumpster fire he'd invited into his bed? But thinking back on it now, maybe he was just as confused as I was, and was seeking some refuge in sleep. I hope he found it, because I barely slept. Or at least, that's what I remember. I wish I had taken better note of his smell, or the line of his spine, or whether my arm that he was clutching to his chest was going under his neck or around his side. But alcohol and insecurity are a bad recipe for mindfulness, and so I fitfully slid in and out of slumber. When I woke up, we were still in the same position, me facing his back. I leaned in and kissed him on the back of his neck, and he roused and turned and kissed me back. We chatted briefly about who knows what, but I have a memory of talking with him as the gray Scottish morning light shone in through his window. Across the street from his house, the lotus dome of a Sikh gurdwara was silhouetted against the sky. And then, as if our misplaced passion from last night had just been like a pair of sunglasses we'd been looking for that had been perched on our head the whole time, we started making out, and then more than making out. It was not the best sex ever. I think our sexually frank phone conversations that had led up to this moment had in a strange way worked against us. We both knew too much about what the other liked, but weren't familiar enough with each other's bodies. But almost better than great sex, it was good sex. Earnest sex. It was sex that had the potential to get not just a little better, but a lot better. And far too soon, it was over. We showered, cleaned up, I helped him make his bed, and we set out to find breakfast. We ended up at Weatherspoons. We've been walking down Sucky Hall, and in case it feels to you listeners like we spent all of our time on Sucky Hall Street, we definitely did, but that's because one end of the street was Calvin's house and the other end was the train station, and all the restaurants or pubs we could possibly want lay in between. We'd intended to find something a little classier than a Weatherspoons, which is sort of like a downscale Applebee's, sorry to both Weatherspoons and Applebee's, but we weren't passing a lot of open places with fry-ups, and it started raining just as we were walking by. 
Here, Calvin again insisted on sitting next to me, which the crotchety old bartender who took our breakfast order either didn't seem to approve of or didn't seem to understand. And suddenly, I realized everything from the night before seemed to have snapped back. It was like I didn't even know the guy who was freaking out in bed as he was falling asleep the night before. Because here was Calvin, with his mad blue eyes and warm, dry hands and slight, knowing smile, sitting awkwardly, delightfully next to me in a pub in Glasgow at 9.30 in the morning. This was a moment I took in, a moment I appreciated. My bus was at 11, and, of course, we still had yet to have the talk. We ate our breakfast and walked to the downtown end of Sucky Hall Street, and, not knowing quite where else to go, ended up walking around the John Lewis department store, finally hanging out in one of the arranged living rooms, trying out a couch, 500 days of summer style. I had dared myself to initiate the conversation no less than an hour before my bus was scheduled to leave, and sitting on the couch in the more or less empty department store, I dove in. So, I figure we should talk some things out, I began ominously. I tried to forefront the whole situation with an acknowledgement that none of it made very much sense. The distance, the age difference, the fact that we had two different passports. None of it was ideal. But, I said, and I know I've said this before, but I just don't meet very many people like you. I don't meet many guys who make me feel the way you make me feel. He stared at his hands for a second. I just really thought you wouldn't like me anymore, he said. This was maybe the first time I really grokked his self-consciousness, his self-doubt. Earlier evidences of it, the great patching, for instance, had seemed to me like a blip on the radar. I can see this going in a few different directions, I continued. First, we never see each other again, and I guess, kind of obviously, I really hope that doesn't happen. Me neither, he said. Two, we see each other a few more times before I have to go back to America— and make sure those days or weekends or whatever are fun and not too heavy and just a good time. And three, like, I'm not closed off to the idea of there being some other possibility than me going back to the U.S. I don't want to put too much pressure on this, obviously, but if one of your worries is that I'm just going to fuck off back to the States, like, I'm ready not to do that. Let's take a moment here to acknowledge that, since I'm writing all of this down from my patchy memory— There's a high likelihood that I said this much less tactfully in the moment. In fact, my memory doesn't seem to have recalled a terribly tactful rendition. So, this is just me, but the thing I think should happen next is that you should come to Brighton, which leaves us open to option two or three. He started nodding and was about to say something affirmative, but I stopped him. But I don't want you to say you're going to come if you don't want to. Are you familiar with Charlie Brown and Lucy and the football? I wasn't sure if this American institution would carry, and, in fact, I should probably take a moment to explicate it for those of you who may not be immediately familiar. For almost half a century, every fall in the comic strip Peanuts, the main character, Charlie Brown, one of the preferred teasing nicknames of my elementary school classmates, we both have large heads, would have his frenemy, Lucy, hold up a football for him to kick. I'll hold the ball, she'd say each year, and you come running and kick it. And almost every year, at the last second, she'd yank the ball out of the way and Charlie Brown would go flying and injure himself. When you tell me you're coming to Brighton and you don't, it just really hurts. So don't say you're coming if you're not. As I write this now, it's reading more as an ambush than I meant it. What was he going to say? You know what? You're right, Charlie. I'm not going to come. Thanks for pushing me on this. No, I want to come to Brighton, he said. 
Well, that makes me so happy I could just spit. We wandered around the department store for a bit longer, now in an awkward place where the next event was me leaving. He told me a bit about growing up, his still incomplete coming out. He told me about being a chubby kid and about other things he hadn't liked about his body. I remember looking at him as he told me this, literally one of the most beautiful human beings I've ever seen in my life, and wanting to shake him or slap him and tell whatever bugaboos were in his head to GTFO. The empathy for him that I had reluctantly nurtured when he had disappeared in February blossomed into an adoring, crushing ache. Finally, it was time to head to the bus station. We popped into a Sainsbury's grocery store so I could stock up on snacks for the nine-hour journey. I grabbed a bag of haggis-flavored chips, vegetarian, and a plowman's sandwich, which is cheddar cheese, pickle relish, arugula, and tomato, and is surprisingly delicious. I was sad to be leaving. What had I been thinking, booking the ticket to leave so soon after I'd arrived? I'd been thinking that my heart was going to get smashed into a million pieces. But I had almost no doubt that Calvin was going to make it to Brighton. It didn't hurt that we did a little making out in the vestibule between the grocery store and the bus station. In line to board the bus, he held my bag with my lunch in front of him. Want me to take that? I asked. He shook his head and leaned to whisper in my ear. It's hiding my erection. I came close, so close, to saying fuck it, abandoning my bus, abandoning my degree, and just staying there with him. Not that that was really an option, but still. I reached the front of the line and was told to board. I gave Calvin one last kiss, just the lips if I'm remembering correctly, since we were standing right next to the bus driver, but it lasted for a few seconds, so sorry bus driver, and then boarded the bus and grabbed a seat up top. He waited until the bus departed before heading off to work. I allowed myself to think clearly, concisely this time, that I may never see him again, but then quickly brushed that idea aside. What could I have done differently? Jumped off the bus, run into his arms, dragged him immediately to an internet cafe and booked his ticket to Brighton, raced into the first church we came across and demanded a marriage, if I'd known that it was the last time I would see him. Next time on Serial Dater. Serial Dater is written, recorded, edited, and produced by me. Editorial help from Olivia Wolfgang Smith, Fatih Ahmed, Emily Alford, CJ Hauser, and Anna Marquart. Music by Tongues. Find their EP, Fight, on Apple Music, Spotify, and Amazon Music. And for more information and to see the music video of their single, Not Like the Real Thing, head to their website, www.tonguesmusic.com. Calvin, played by Callum Barclay. You can find links to more of his work by heading to our website, www.serialdaterpodcast.com. There you can also find info, links, and photos related to this episode. Follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, at SerialDaterPod. Email us at SerialDaterPodcast at gmail.com. 
You can support Serial Dater by retweeting, reposting, and standing in the town square with a bell, or more effectively by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts and Spotify, which helps other people find it. You can donate to Serial Dater by going to our homepage and clicking the Donate button in the upper right-hand corner. Special thanks to Tara Brock for letting us use clips for podcast, and how could I not thank the US-UK Fulbright Commission, who clearly have either gotten a lot more or a lot less from this bargain than they were expecting, depending on one's perspective. This podcast is a work of memoir. It reflects my present recollection of past events. Some names and characteristics have been changed, some events have been compressed, and some dialogue has been recreated. Who gave you eyes like that? Said you could keep them. I don't know how to act or if I should be leaving. I'm running out of time, going out of my mind.